With Tesla Government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. And, uh, you know, I'm the, I'm the first U.S. commander of Chinese units since Stillwell in World War II. Small fun fact. It's a really unique opportunity to, uh, to be able to interact in an international way that is probably pretty foreign to most of our U.S. civil affairs. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. And we're joined by Major General Hugh Van Roosen. By the time you're hearing this, he will be retired from the military. A very extensive career in civil affairs, special forces, and psychological operations. His last assignment was deputy military advisor to the Department of Peace Operations in the United Nations. Sir, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, John. Glad to uh, have the opportunity. Thank you, sir. So what is your next position in life? What are you going to be doing? Well, I actually have applied for a uh, Department of the Army civilian job over in Italy. Um, I interviewed for it, uh, waiting for the results of that. Uh, but um, if that does come, it may be several months uh, due to COVID and visas and so forth. This is a difficult time to, um, to move overseas. Definitely. Well, you're picking a great spot. And uh, good luck to you. It's great to have you remain in the CA family as much as possible. So we wanted to have basically an open-ended discussion here. Um, I'm not going to go through your extensive military bio, but if you could reflect upon those many years, we want to try to draw out for the audience today some of the lessons learned that you've had, some of the experience that stood out to you, and uh, later we'll get to questions about uh, any perspective you may have on the convergence of SF, CA, and PSYOP, and some lessons um, that you could probably impart in or guidance for the force about what's coming around the bend and what you see as ways for CA members to prepare for the future. If you could, sir, talk about how many years were you in uniform and, and how did you start after, I think it was ROTC at SUNY Albany? Sure, John. So um, actually, I started at um, the University of Massachusetts in uh, Amherst. Um, I was um, putting myself through college and trying to do it by working at the same time which is not something I would recommend to anyone. It was an extremely laborious process for me that took much longer than it should have. I ended up going to four different colleges over time. So I started out in the ROTC program at UMass uh, in Amherst. Um, I joined um, a lo local infantry National Guard unit, found myself as a uh, acting platoon leader because they were short of officers. Fine. I didn't know anything about being a platoon leader, but uh, I learned it the hard way with the help of um, a good um, platoon sergeant. Unfortunately, I ran out of money about a semester later and found myself immediately taken from being the platoon leader to being the lowest ranking private in the same platoon uh, and sent off to one station unit training uh, at Fort Benning for infantry. So that's how my military career started back in uh, 1979, nearly 42 years ago, um, I remember thinking to myself at the time, what in the world have I gotten myself into? I really had no particular goals with the military. I came from a 
family. My my father, two of my uncles, um, and an aunt had served in World War II. Uh, had a grandfather who had served in World War One. You know, infantry, OSS. Uh, you know, different backgrounds there. So I I was fairly comfortable with the concept. Anyway, um, I came back, uh, was a private, uh, then a specialist, and decided that OCS might be a good way to go. So I applied and um, was able to go through OCS and get my commissioning that way. I came back, continued to work on college, and went through time as a second lieutenant. Uh, I was recruited um, still as a second lieutenant into special forces by a family friend uh, into a reserve special forces unit. They sent me off to airborne school, special forces training. I came back. I was actually the last, one of the last two second lieutenants uh, that went through the Q course, as it's called, for special forces. It became a requirement to be a lieutenant, uh, first lieutenant or captain right after I went through. I ended up actually in special forces for 14 years. Uh, and during that time, I um, really enjoyed it, got to see the world, uh, really um, had a lot of fun with it. Uh, most of that was in northern locations, lots of time and in the Arctic. At the end of that time, I realized that um, the AGR program was um, something that looked interesting to me. Uh, so I went ahead and applied for that um, and eventually was picked up. And um, when I went into the AGR program, that was the same time that the Reserve Special Forces groups were uh, being closed down to only have them be in the National Guard. So I found myself um, reassigned at that point to a new kind of unit called a Civil Affairs Unit. I had no real idea what a Civil Affairs Unit was, but um, was happy to um, go off and take that opportunity. I actually picked a place because I own a boat and was looking for someplace I could bring my boat. So I went to Lake Ontario. Uh, there thankfully were three uh, Civil Affairs Battalions up there uh, at the time. And I picked the one in Rochester, New York, which was the four referrals at the time, which is now down in Puerto Rico. I, I dove into that experience and I found myself as a battalion uh, one, two, three, four, and six. I wore all those hats um, at the time. So it gave me a really good experience on running a civil affairs battalion, but I didn't know much about the doctrine. So I jumped into that with 10th Mountain Division, uh, really began to understand the process and how to deploy with in support of an active duty division and what it was that they needed. Again, learned that the hard way, read the manual, did it a few on a couple of uh, exercises and then, then went to the school afterwards. For me, that actually was not a bad way to do it because it grounded me in what a, what a division actually needs from its civil affairs capability. At the end of that uh, assignment of, uh, of three years, um, I found myself uh, getting assigned to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, uh, as an instructor in civil uh, I then was able to take uh, my experience, uh, and we'd, we'd done both Bosnia and, well, Bosnia and Kosovo, we both kicked off during that time. But we were able to use that kind of experience to uh, revise the doctrine um, up through the late 1990s uh, to about 2000. Had a lot of fun um, at the schoolhouse. Ended up being given a company command over civil affairs and psychological operations um, uh, while I was there. So I finished that up um, 
and from there I was um, I, I was given an opportunity to take something called the regional studies course. It was a essentially a master's program back then that uh, you could do a, sort of a parallel with Webster University and uh, really helps uh, ground uh, and and fill out those the um, the civil affairs training that I'd seen. And during that same time, I also went to the psychological operations uh, officers course and was qualified there. So I found myself, you know, dealing with the schoolhouse on civil affairs, uh, uh, psychological operations and special forces. I ended up doing all three of those while I was still there. And there I was assigned to Special Operations Command Europe. Back then, um, that was responsible for both Africa and Europe. We're back to the future right now since uh, the command has just uh, reconsolidated. UCOM did not have any civil affairs capability or PSYOP capability or special forces capability. All of that was the responsibility of software. I found myself uh, building a little empire there of about 25 people. We did civil affairs for Africa and Europe and part of the Middle East. It was a really good um, assignment. Loved it. That was when Afghanistan and Iraq kicked off. We were doing non-combatant evacuation operations across uh, Africa. Uh, Liberia was heating up. Uh, it, it was a really interesting time. We were able to go into much of Eastern Europe. Uh, we were able to go into part of the Middle East. Uh, and of course, we did the kickoff for, as I said, both Afghanistan and Iraq. And at, back then, we were actually in partnership with CENTCOM for both of those missions. So we would do joint planning and um, and actually do some of the operations. So we established, for instance, um, bases in Turkey um, for uh, the invasion into Iraq. Learned a lot through that period of time about civil affairs um, in conjunction with the uh, battalion time I'd had and the special warfare center I'd had. From that, uh, I came um, out um, of uh, Sakur and was assigned to a battalion, uh, the 402nd, that was already in Iraq. And I took over and finished their deployment with them for about, what was it, four, like that, and then brought them back to Tonawanda, New York, spent a fairly short period of time. And then I found myself um, promoted to 06, reassigned to Army Special Ops. Operations Command down at Fort Bragg uh, as the reserve liaison. That lasted one week. Uh, the commanding general um, pulled me up uh, and had me become the deputy G3 for Yusasak. Uh, I got to deal with um, a little bit. So we were still dealing with Iraq and Afghanistan. I also was the only person involved at Fort Bragg other than the 82nd Airborne uh, with uh, Hurricane Katrina relief interesting experience for me. The uh, ASOC commander offered me command of the 95th Civil Affairs Brigade. I reminded him that I was a reserve officer, and he said he didn't care. Um, however, there was a long discussion with the then USA KPOC commander, General Altschiller, who um, uh, had put me in for consideration for a AGR brigade command, and I ended up getting 360th Civil Affairs Brigade um, down at Fort Jackson. I rolled into that and almost immediately the brigade was deployed to Iraq uh, for over a year. So I found myself with a short uh, battalion command in Iraq and then I had a long brigade command in Iraq. It was an unusual 
Brigade it with 50% Navy, 25% Air Force, and 25% Army. I, uh, I tried to fight to make that uh, an all-Army one, but we were so stretched back then with the surge and um, all of the rotations that were going on, um, I was told to um, make the best of it. And so that gave me the opportunity to actually do what is about as joint assignment as you can get. Uh, so just to wrap that up, I ended up coming back, went to the War College after Brigade Command. Again, not the normal way to do that. Came out of that, became the Chief of Staff for use KPOC, uh, was promoted to Brigadier General, got the 353 KCOM in uh, New York, which was once again responsible for Europe and Africa. Um, stayed with that for about uh, just slightly under two years. Uh, was selected for a UN position in Liberia. Uh, so I went over as the fourth chief of staff, did that for uh, about a year and a half, came back, uh, was given by the ASOC commander, directed to start up something called the Institute for Military Support Governance, uh, and established the 38 uh, Golf uh, MOS series. Uh, we went through all of that, although we didn't get through the budget part before I got pulled back by the National Security Agency to do... Um, another UN short mission supporting South Sudan. From there, I uh, went back to Fort Bragg for a, about another year, found myself uh, promoted to uh, Major General, pulled up to be the deputy for um, uh, Lieutenant General McConville, who's now the Chief Staff of the Army. Uh, so I was the Deputy G1, did that for two years, and then another opportunity came to go back to the UN, this time as a Deputy Military Advisor. And that's where that's what got me to where I am. As of last week, I finished up, and uh, so there's your whole career in a in a snippet. So, what that tells you is I've spent about 14 years in civil affairs. Uh, I did about 15 years of special forces, just a little bit of uh, infantry, and I overlaid some psyop on that as well. I assignment in all four areas. It's been a lot of fun. Um, let me go back to questions and then I'll talk about some of the lessons that I've learned for civil affairs and those wider responsibilities for interagency, international cooperation. So thank you. It's, it is so much better to hear it from your perspective about your bio than just someone reading off a list. Yeah, you know, talking about the transition and, and why you're picked up for certain things and how that really turned out. So thank you for sharing. Okay, so you started in 1979. After 40 years, right, I think the American public is now uh, very in favor of the, of the U.S. military. So what was that like when you first came in in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, just after Vietnam? How have you seen the trends change during the Cold War to where we are now in support of the military generally, right? And, and where you're coming from, you talked about your family's background and connection to the military. And now that we still have, uh, I think we talk about a 1% population that volunteers to serve in the military in some aspect, um, and an even smaller percentage of that who serve in SFCA and SIA. What is sort of your big picture takeaway of, uh, are we heading in the right direction with civil relations in the U.S. and the respect that people have for the military? And what would be your pitch to someone listening now, if they are not yet in the military, to consider joining? Well, thanks, John. The, um, uh, the mood in 
the United States in the late uh, 70s was very, this was just after uh, the Vietnam War uh, came to a close, I think in 1976. It was still very, very much an anti-war sentiment uh, in the United States. I remember walking across the campus at UMass Amherst uh, wearing an ROTC uniform and people um, making comments that I was a baby killer, which I thought was a bit ironic and a lack of understanding of what an ROTC uniform is, since I clearly hadn't served in anything other than college uh, classes so far. That didn't particularly put me off um, because I, I also saw you know, strong community support um, as well. I mean, I grew up just around the corner from uh, two general officers in a small suburb outside of Boston, um, you know, one of whom was um, a classmate, uh, you know, my same uh, age level, uh, a guy by the name of Mark Milley, who's now the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, you know, so we, we certainly have a, had a, a, you know, in, in our small non-military location outside of Boston, we had a, 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 an awful lot of previous military families and people that were interested in serving. So I didn't have a sense of, you know, it was us, you know, or the, anybody who wanted to wear the uniform against the, the public. Uh, I just felt that it was, you know, part of the public certainly didn't like the idea of the military. That still was that way. And the quality and the standards were certainly lacking in the 70s and the 80s. But it steadily got better. Um, number of areas from uh, inclusiveness and diversity, all of that changed steadily over the, uh, the 1980s and the 1990s. And it was good to see that. Um, and standards really did improve. Uh, training and equipping, all of that uh, just continued to improve, regardless of which administration was in power. There was a trajectory to, um, uh, to how the military was working and how it was, it was being seen. Now, uh, you know, there were some hiccups in there, like um, Desert One, uh, the uh, attempt to uh, pull the um, uh, embassy personnel out of Iran, but that actually had positive implications uh, for the organization of the military and really created the joint structure and doctrine concept. Uh, beyond that, um, uh, most of our efforts were relatively uh, small scale uh, until, um, uh, you know, Desert uh, Storm kicked off. That that was probably the most seminal change in the public's view of the military for those about 20 years. That uh, created an upsurge in um, uh, support and enthusiasm, uh, rightfully so. You know, that was certainly a shining uh, moment uh, under General Shortstaff uh, and our allies uh, all working together. It's an interesting bit of military history. Since then, you know, the, the, I think the traje trajectory of uh, positive image uh, has continued to increase. Uh, and, and um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, we're only seeing about 1% of the population serving. Much of that comes from some kind of military family or military connections. So it's a bit of a family affair at this point, uh, which has pluses and minuses. But the pub public as a whole has maintained strong support for the military 
even over the nation's longest war, which of course is the war in Afghanistan. You know, we've um, probably the only thing that's um, been a bit negative um, has been the length and the inability of uh, both uh, the political and military side to find a really acceptable conclusion to those uh, long conflicts. Folks, you've been listening to the Once a Year podcast. Our guest today is Major General Hugh Van Roosen. When we come back, we'll talk about more about his reflections on a career in CA, PSYOP, and SF. We'll be right back. Everywhere you look, there's a barrage of emails and information telling you what everybody has done, is doing, or plans to do, all in excruciating detail. But access is only half the battle. You also need information presented in a usable form. But that takes work, and the more information you have, the more work it takes. Tesla government takes on these issues so that your office or agency can fully exploit the data you already have. Our knowledge management experts organize and curate your internal data. Our open source research augments your knowledge base with strategic insights from our globally experienced team. And our data visualization turns complex data into compelling visuals, while our community building makes sure everyone benefits by leveraging collective knowledge. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. Do you have an idea for an upcoming podcast or know someone who may be a good person to interview? Contact us at capodcasting at gmail.com. Welcome back to the One CA Podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode, and we're speaking with Major General Hugh Van Roosen. Sir, um, I want to pick up on something we discussed previously, which was um, how U.S. signal relations have changed. Look at, if you would, uh, in a similar vein, how the use of CA has changed. Civil Affairs Forces, when uh, you started, it was the Cold War. And then we had a big trend uh, shifting to uh, counterinsurgency and uh, the global war on terrorism. Now we have shifted back to large-scale combat operations, competition below conflict, what we call the gray zone. So has there been any commonality of you think of the use of civil affairs forces, their capabilities and value to the U.S. military, or have the missions changed drastically throughout that time? Good question, John. So the, you know, for me, uh, my civil affairs time really started in support to uh, infantry uh, divisions, occasionally other types of units as well, but mostly it's, it's support to, to the infantry. Uh, so that became something of a comfort zone. Um, that being said, I, you know, because of my special forces uh, background and uh, spent a lot of time in special operations, I also saw utilization of the same CA capability for uh, special operations missions. Both are uh, valuable uh, resources to the commander uh, for those operations. As far as economy of scale, though, uh, when you're talking about su- supporting the conventional operations, which is arguably a, the sort of the more traditional utilization of civil affairs, that certainly spiked um, uh, over time. It was uh, that way through 
Desert Storm. It was that way through Bosnia and Kosovo. It was that way, um, certainly in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you know, that was the, the, the focus. Um, and that's why we are currently mostly using uh, reserve uh, civil affairs for that capability. Lots of arguments over time about whether that's a good idea or not, but you know, that's the way it is and that's where the bulk of the personnel are. And that I think is fine. So, but what we have seen is with you know, that divergence um, uh, with special operations and conventional, you know, this has been a budget issue and so forth. We still have the capability. We still have the training and equipment uh, to be able to support uh, uh, the conventional, large conventional force. Uh, I, I think that uh, the special operations mission set is a great one, but I think that if we go back in time, there was a time when the 95th, uh, excuse me, the 96th way back when was uh, indeed responsible for initial operational support to conventional forces as an emerging operation would come out. Um, and that um, that would then be backfilled um, by reserve components. I tend to think that that paradigm might be worth looking at, looking at again in the future, even though we seem to have gone in very different directions with the mission sets. Uh, there is, I think, good reason to look at that again in the future. The, um, but the missions themselves, regardless of who is being supported, uh, whether that's a special operations mission or a conventional mission, many of the same um, uh, requirements are there. Uh, we've relied uh, heavily on the special operations side to be generally stronger in the language uh, capability, but probably that's the one significant divergence. Now you can also argue that the, the training set has changed as well. It is worth future discussion over, you know, synchronizing civil affairs um, training and equipping. But again, that's been a longstanding argument for many years. So I, I see you know, as we are going back to great power conflict and more concern from, you know, the last several years, it was North Korea. And now we're back to being particularly interested in issues uh, potentially involving uh, Russia or China. Uh, you know, in these cases, um, you know, strengthening that uh, conventional civil affairs capability, I think is important. We, we started that way with um, a, a couple of uh, active duty um, brigades uh, or brigades and some battalions that were supporting that, uh, but uh, budgets and changing uh, policy led to the downsizing and withdrawal of most of that capability. Um, with that focus, largely, you know, the, most of the, the customer base is the conventional military. I think having a strong, well thought out civil affairs capability that meets that is uh, is very important. The 95th and Special Operations uh, under First Special Forces Command is, of course, very important as well. Even though they were originally designed to support the conventional force, we are that's not where we are now. Uh, I think all of that would be worthy of of some rethink. Thank you, sir. A couple more questions for you, if we could. You've had many years working with the United Nations. What is the UN military uh, mission all about, and how does that tie to civil affairs? 
Thanks, John. So um, j just to kind of give you the job description for what I've been doing for the last four years. So I'm the first U.S. general to serve directly at the U.N. headquarters um, for the Secretariat. We've had people attached before. I was even attached for a short period of time. I'm the first person under contract um, in a normal position uh, in 75 years in UN history. So when there are three general officers at the UN Secretariat, a three-star, a two-star, and a one-star, they run an organization called the Office of Military Affairs, made up of about 130 military and a few civilian personnel that are responsible for first generation, doctrine and training, current operations, um, policy, uh, and, um, and also an intelligence aspect. So that, that headquarters, if you will, uh, has oversight and technical uh, authority over 22 missions around the world that uh, when I started, we had about 100,000 troops deployed from 120 countries. Currently, we're down to about 72,000. It fluctuates as missions come and go. Some of those are very long-standing observer missions with relatively low numbers, uh, like in um, Western Sahara or Cyprus or the Kashmir or Colombia. Others are very high-end, and um, although the UN is not in the business of making war, as the my Undersecretary General said one morning, we are in combat every single day. So the combat missions, uh, the big ones are in Mali, where we've got uh, nearly 15,000 troops deployed, um, you know, attack helicopters, um, infantry battalions, uh, special forces, quick reaction forces, hospitals, engineering units. It's a big operation. As a matter of fact, the UN has the largest deployed army in the world. In uh, the Central African Republic, uh, similar kind of size and scope, different enemy. Uh, in the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, there are some very nasty people in one particular part of the country. Uh, used to be uh, the Lord's Resistance Army. Now it's a unit, you know, organization called uh, the Allied Democratic Force. Each of these are serious uh, competitors that use different tactics, techniques, and procedures. Uh, but we are literally in combat every day in those countries uh, and occasionally in others. We're in the Middle East, we're in Syria, Israel, Lebanon, uh, we're, uh, we're in Cyprus, we're in uh, South Sudan, Sudan, uh, and others. It's a, it's a really large set of operations and managing that from an operational perspective was my job. What uh, each mission has is its own force with a force commander. Typically, that's a three-star for the big missions, a two-star for the smaller missions, uh, and each of them has a chief of staff, a deputy force commander. Uh, but we had, uh, right now, we've got 93 infantry battalions deployed. So what we've been uh, doing uh, is, is we use, right now, 120 countries pledge uh, either staff officers, observers, or units to be able to go into those missions. So if a U.S. Uh, civil affairs uh, operator uh, comes across someone with a blue helmet, then you should know that they're, you're overlapping into one of those 22 mission areas. And there is an entire Security Council mandate and structure and logistics and everything. I mean, we even have a fleet in the Mediterranean. So 
all of that is uh, something that you are likely to run into in conflict location. So you should have a sense of what that structure looks like, what their mandate is. So each, each of those 22 missions has a mandate from the Security Council that's renewed every year. And you can just go online and look at that and it'll tell you exactly what the structure is for military, police, and civilian, what their goals are and what their expectations are. It'll even tell you their budget. If you're trying to operate in the same space, you ought to know what the goals of the UN organization, which may be 30,000 people, you know, in the same place you're trying to operate, you really ought to have an idea of what they're up to. Historically, the military in the UN has had some significant issues with performance. And in the last three and a half years, we've tried to change that paradigm. We've done it by writing uh, UN manuals for infantry, aviation, medical, engineering, uh, special forces, uh, et cetera. And in that, it has specific tasks and specific standards that can be measured. We are now measuring that unit's capability to meet those standards. And if they are not meeting those standards, then we take action. What that is doing is significantly changing the um, performance of the UN in these missions for the better in a number of measurable ways. So anyway, that's the overlap there. You'll run into Chinese troops, uh, Russian staff officers. Uh, you'll run into Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Rwandans, uh, Ethiopians, you name it. You know, we've got them all. And, uh, you know, I'm the, I'm the first U.S. commander of Chinese units since Stillwell in World War II. Small fun fact. It's a really unique opportunity to, uh, to be able to interact in an international way that is probably pretty foreign to most of our U.S. civil affairs. Thank you, sir. Do you think that there will be opportunities for mid-grade or senior NCOs or officers from the CA community, CA operators to go through a lower level rotation in support of the UN? Yeah, so uh, and you asked that question, I didn't answer. And that's, you know, what is the U.S. doing? So the U.S. typically, and the, you know, I've been involved for, you know, about six years now with the UN. Uh, we typically have about somewhere between 30 and 60 U.S. service members, all services, that, although mostly Army, that uh, will serve in missions or at the headquarters. Typically, we have, we try to keep at least two U.S. service members at the headquarters. The, uh, in the missions, uh, the big ones for us are Mali, um, Central African Republic, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, and South Sudan. Those are the four that we typically pledge um, staff officers for. What we do not do yet is pledge units. Uh, although I was just having a discussion with the Chief of the Army Reserve um, a couple of days ago about looking at the potential for rotating particular units. And those would likely be engineering or aviation or transportation, some enabling capability like that. When it comes to civil affairs personnel right now, and there are a variety of reasons for it, but it doesn't have to do with the U.S. It has to do with the militaries of the rest of the world. The staff officers and military observers are all officers. 
we have had, we do have in the missions, non-commissioned officers um, and uh, and lower ranking as well, but the U.S. does not. If we were to pledge units, then the unit would come with its normal table of organization equipment, so it would be all ranks. Uh, if you're looking for an opportunity for a civil affairs officer, there are some, and those would be particularly in those four missions that I mentioned. When it comes to being a staff officer, you know, there are particular positions that are that require a specific skill set, and the UN has something called CIMIC, uh, Civil Military Cooperation. NATO has a similar uh, term. So we're, we're just in the process of rewriting UN CIMIC doctrine right now. I was very hard on the doctrine writers. Um, they came up with a 40-page document. I said, you can have four pages. A policy needs to be very short. And we're pairing that with a, a CIMIC manual, which will be uh, much more useful. But I also uh, made sure that in the infantry units, which are 76% of our deployed troops, I added to that um, an engagement platoon, which is 50% female. Uh, and it has very traditional, what, what would look like CA mission sets for that infantry unit. So the intent is that every infantry battalion will have an engagement platoon. In some, in some cases, the separate companies, we've got about, I think, about 30 quick reaction forces. Um, and some of those have engagement teams on them as well. Those don't all necessarily have to come from the same company or country as the host's battalion. Uh, we do occasionally see mixed units where there, you've got a, an Italian battalion with a Slovakian platoon, you know, that type of thing. So it is possible to do mix and match uh, for these units. So uh, this is another area that the U.S. could potentially pledge for would be to put engagement platoons with with those infantry battalions. Nothing to say that that couldn't be done, and this will be another area that I talk with DOD and um, the Army about. Uh, the Army is more interested in this than the other services for a variety of reasons, and uh, the Army Reserve is a better fit uh, in the minds of um, most of our uh, leadership than uh, other sources. So. We'll continue to see some number of staff officers and military observers. Uh, they go through a training program through something called the U.S. Military Observer Group Washington. Very cool training program. It lasts a couple of months long before deployment. It's a lot of fun. You get to crash cars and um, escape from uh, Houdini situations. And all. It's a, it's that a, sounds a, awesome. It's a, it's a pretty cool training program. And then uh, you deploy, you do your mission and come back. And we're, it doesn't necessarily have to be a really long one. You know, the, the UN likes to have people stay for at least one year just for uh, awareness of the situation and uh, minimize the transition uh, overlap, particularly with COVID. But there are some countries that like to do shorter rotations, like six months. And if the country is willing to pay for the, the rotation of that individual, the UN doesn't fight back too hard. That's great, sir. So I, I can't let you leave without asking a final question here about guidance from, uh, from general officer to the force. So what are some of the tools that you think CA personnel should be learning? Is it a foreign language? Is it uh, diving more deeply into social network analysis, for example, or 
reading a certain book that's going to tell them, you know, magic ball to predict the future, any kind of like hard skills or soft skills that you think would be helpful for the future. So I may, uh, I may cause some ruffled feathers by saying this, but I'm, I'm almost retired. Um, you know, the language is a, a great skill if you can get it and maintain it. But uh, history has told us, particularly on the reserve component side, uh, obtaining and maintaining language uh, skills is extremely difficult to do for all kinds of reasons, not to mention uh, the reserve components will, you know, uh, have to spend uh, only part of their time on military and uh, the rest on their, their day job. I'm not convinced that language is a critically important tool for civil affairs. It's useful, but you can get along without it. Uh, there are, you know, utilization, you know, there's, there's smart ways to use translators and interpreters, uh, and there is an ever-improving technological capability that's coming up as well. So I would spend more time on, you know, sort of the social analysis part, and there are some basic lessons there. So one of my, as a, as a military person, one of my biggest frustrations in dealing with the State Department, the United Nations, and non-governmental organizations, I didn't understand their decision-making process. And it caused cognitive dissonance for me, and I became frustrated. But once I became, uh, began to understand their decision-making process, suddenly it became much easier to do business with them. And I'd say particularly for the State Department and the United Nations, because they're big organizations that you're likely to see yourself dealing with at some point. And the lesson there, uh, and I'll give you one more after this, so the lesson with those types of organizations, even though they talk about courses of action and, um, you know, uh, a process for making a decision, it's a fundamentally different decision process. What you do instead of presenting to a decision maker who will make some adjustments and come up with a decision and implement, that is not how it works. What happens instead is you must seek consensus from all stakeholders. So everybody who thinks they've got a part to play in whatever the thing you're operating, you're, whatever that operation is that you're planning, you've got to get all the stakeholders and convince all of them of a particular course of action. And you may adjust it over time, but when you're done, you then present essentially a fait accompli to the decision maker uh, who accepts that, that consensus. The State Department really works that way and the UN really works that way. So if you understand that, you'll stop getting frustrated at the lack of the capability of the decision maker to make a decision. And you realize where you need to put your effort and that's with the stakeholders. So if you learn that lesson, you will find significant success where others have failed bring online every stakeholder and then present that agreed upon solution to the decision maker. And what that means is that you have the power instead of the decision maker, which means that's a flaw in the system, but that's the reality. The other thing I would take away, and this is sort of a lifelong military lesson, I learned by accident early on, you know, when someone tells you what to do, if you're not entirely comfortable with it, ask the question, why? And I can point to about four or five times in my career where just asking why 
solved a problem, which wasn't necessarily about the what, it was about how to get to the end result. And I'll, I'll give you an example. A month and a half ago, I got a call late at night on the 22nd of December from a Lieutenant General uh, in uh, the Central African Republic who asked me if I could kindly provide him with two quick reaction force companies and two attack helicopters in three days. So anybody who understands the first generation process will understand that that's damn near impossible. And if you really try to just go with what they asked for, you may find yourself in an impossible situation. When I unpacked why they were asking for that, then other solutions came up. So the reason they asked why, because they already had two quick reaction forces, but both of them were bogged down in protecting the main supply routes into the capital, which was under siege at the time. And there was a really high probability that the government was going to fall. So what he needed was to unlock those two quick reaction forces. What I was able to do was pull two companies worth of infantry out of South Sudan, where the risk was very low, put them on aircraft, bring them over to the capital, put all of them in static guard positions around the capital, which freed up two infantry companies with all their equipment to go out and release the quick reaction forces. And then all of a sudden, you just had two quick reaction forces within three days. But had I tried to provide them from somewhere else in the world, I'd be very lucky to get them there in one to six months. Helicopters were a little bit more of a challenge. And this is another kind of a lesson, which is when you're dealing with other governments. So I won't mention the government here, but we asked a government to provide helicopters. And they said, sure. So the ministry, Minister of Defense was good and formally agreed to do that and do it quickly. What we didn't know was that the, uh, the chief of staff of the Air Force was actually more powerful than the Minister of Defense staff of the Air Force had no intention of meeting that requirement and was putting up roadblock after roadblock. So we ended up giving up on that once we understood the, the dynamics in that particular country, went to another country, and I was able to get the helicopters there within 10 days. So, you know, and, and oh, by the way, I had to get the Security Council to approve at the same time. So incredibly, you can actually, if you just understand the why, you can make things happen that if you just go with what was asked for might never happen. So it's, I think it's something that all U.S. military personnel learn fairly early on. Don't just take the hill. Ask why that hill needs to be take, taken. And if you understand the, you know, what's behind it, you may find there are strategies that will achieve the same end but uh, be far more effective or efficient. All right, so a couple of thoughts. So I think we'll leave it at that. And on a high note, Major General Hugh Van Roosen, thank you so much for your career in the military. Thank you for contributing to the CA community in many, many ways. We know you'll stay in the CA family and connected to the Civil Affairs Association, but thanks for being on the One CA podcast today. John, thanks so much for the opportunity. And uh, you know, my heart is definitely with Civil Affairs. I look forward to uh, working uh, with the association and with the uh, with the Army and the other services uh, to continue to uh, strengthen civil affairs in the future uh, in a ever-changing world. Thanks very much. 
The Civil Affairs Association is calling for papers. As a green force that operates in gray zones, how should civil affairs understand competition? How would a global civil military network be a geostrategic game changer in the struggle with authoritarian powers for global dominance? To address these questions, the Civil Affairs Association and its partners invite civil military professionals to send original papers by the deadline of September 3. The top five papers will appear in the 2021-22 Civil Affairs Issue Papers, and authors will present them virtually at the CA Symposium this fall. The top three papers, as determined by symposium participants, will receive cash prizes. For more information, visit the CA Association website at civilaffairsassoc.org. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of One CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory. In civil affairs, your success depends on getting the right information to the right people at the right time. Whether it's foundational information for a team about to head out on a mission or putting together a map or other data visualization to brief a general or an ambassador, Tesla Government Solutions and staff can help. With Tesla Government's Knowledge Management Solutions, you're adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com.